0: Again, everyone, it's Charles Marshall here on the West Coast foreclosure show. A good afternoon to those of you in the West Coast time zone, and good evening good evening to, to those of you in the East. And today is September twenty-first, twenty seventeen. I am broadcasting live from Southern California, and this is the fifth broadcast of the West Coast foreclosure show uh, today we have investigator bill padelow and former fdic team member eric Maines on the show with me uh, we will be discussing several items uh, one will be a recent california case federal case out of the northern district called nordalillo versus jp morgan chase In this particular case, Chase claimed that they owned Nardalillo's note and deed of trust, claiming this ownership based on ostensibly taking over the WAMU assets, who was, again, I use the word ostensibly, the nominal originating lender. And Nardalillo disagrees with this analysis and he alleges that his note was securitized and sold prior to the merger, and therefore Chase is only the loan servicer, not the owner. Now, this whole line of analysis actually has several problems, even though so far the case developments have benefited the plaintiff, and we'll discuss some of those problems on the show. Eric Maines is going to be providing an update on his freedom of information strategy to obtain information about the LPS Black Knight consent judgment. I am broadcasting live uh, today, and I will be broadcasting live on the first first and third Thursday of each month with a focus on West Coast developments. Neil Garfield will continue to broadcast his regular show the second and fourth Thursday of each month. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com and is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount of donation is appreciated and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Also by calling telephone number 202-838-6345 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Uh, Eric, Uh, If you could tell the listeners what the latest developments are and the uh, FOIA-like arena that that you've been making some progress in.
1: Sure, I'll be happy to do that, Charles. And and just, uh, by the way, for the listeners' edification, I'm going to stick to a uh, very strict timeline. So at quarter after, I'm going to shut up whether I need to or not and let Bill get on to uh, his items. (laughs) Uh, so I don't go over time here. But what I wanted to impart to some of the listeners, because I've got some questions and I've seen some uh, questions out there as to why the FOIA strategy is relevant to most of them, uh, because the question has been, well, LPS was likely not part of my case. Why do I care about FOIA the state and why is this relevant to me? Um, so let me start with that. And, and can, am I getting through? Uh, can you hear me okay, Charles? I was having a little bit of trouble with my line earlier.
0: Oh, I can hear you. You hear you fine, Eric.
1: Okay, great. I just wanted to check that. All right. The answer to that question is why is it re- why is this relevant to the uh, listener, whether his case was an LPS case or not, is simply this. As Neil pointed out in a column he did a few days ago, the problem with getting through the courts has been the legal presumption that the documents presented by the banks and the servicers are valid. And let's face it, that's why we are all here. It is because we are faced with foreclosures or potential wrongful foreclosures based on documents, hearsay evidence that we know is not valid, that is not backed up any factual data, in many cases is robo-signed or forged, and based on, uh, again, hearsay evidence from people who who can't claim any uh, firsthand knowledge to the claims about your loan, your supposed loan that they are making. So how do you get past those presumptions? Well, this works on somewhat of a step-by-step basis with what I've looked at. With the FOIA requested to the AG's office on the LPS consent judgment, what you're doing is you're setting up number one, the AG's office to respond to a company that was involved with 80% of the early foreclosure work based on their uh, desktop software program used in foreclosures. And you're getting the AG's office to respond in many cases with a stonewall response when you ask them, what information do you have about this consent judgment? How do you know, how do we know as the public, what was done to ensure that the robo signings, what was done to to make sure that the foreclosure mills stopped and went in and got corrective assignments done and made sure that these foreclosures were done properly. How do we know that? What were the parameters set? And when the AG's office responds, well, we can't release that information, especially after sending out all these uh, rosy press releases saying, well, we've done a great job here for a few million dollars based on the billions of dollars of damage done based on these robo signed and forged documents. We've accepted a few million dollars, basically the price of a few median homes in that state, and let these guys off the hook. But don't worry. The robo-signing has stopped. The National Mortgage uh, Settlement has ensured that as well, as well as the LPS consent judgment. This isn't going on anymore. Well, if it's not going on anymore, why are you so hesitant and reluctant to release information that's not even attorney-client privilege? What's attorney-client privilege about what the parameters were for how consent judgment was followed up on? What's attorney-client privilege about what was done to ensure that the foreclosure mills went and got corrective assignments done and what have you. And it's putting them in a position where they're gonna soon have egg on their face. And I'll get to that in a minute. The weak link in this whole chain is the foreclosure mills. And as we saw, and as I referenced again in an article that uh, Neil put out there a few days ago, look at the Stern Law Firm in Florida. That is a firm that was brought down in flames and had multiple class actions filed against it successfully where people recovered monies based on all the robo-signing and forgery that was done by the Stern Law Firm. And they are the weakest link because they are the most exposed. In the end, the high guy up the food chain doesn't take the fall. The banks have done a very good job at seeing that they remain remote, that they've used servicers like Aquan and foreclosure mills like the Stern Law Firm to make sure that they have plausible deniability that they have a cushion in between them. So if the regulators are forced, and again, much like the AG's office is soon to be forced to come knocking, they can say, well, that is really horrible. That happened, but we didn't know these people were committing those bad acts. Basically the foreclosure mills and the servicers know they can be hung out to dry. So they are the, again, the exposed party in all this. Now, I'm going to be putting out in a few days, and we'll discuss here very briefly how easy it is to uncover evidence that the AG's office, in fact, did not follow up on a consent judgment and that the foreclosure mills did not do corrective assignments. And this is information in most cases that is available low cost or free, just quickly, because I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. And I will be posting this out there with Neil's help in a few days. It is easy to look up which cases is a foreclosure mill attorney's handle because every attorney is assigned a unique attorney ID number and you can go to most state's website, pull up an attorney by name, and you will get his attorney ID number. Once you have that, you can do a search on most of the databases. Uh, here in Indiana, we have an Odyssey database. And most uh, states that are not in the Stone Age have a database where you can search by attorney ID number to see the cases they've handled. And this will go back usually at least for a decade or more. With that information in hand and doing a search by date, you can see all, again, the foreclosure cases handled by that foreclosure mill law firm, the name of the party, the address of the home, if they were represented by counsel and the name of that counsel, And once you have that information, and again, this is all free so far, you can do this for free. If you're a class action attorney, you just hit the goldmine because with the address of the home, the name of the parties involved, you can then go to many of the, again, publicly available and low-cost title search engines. Uh, We have one in uh, Indiana here, again, that can be – and it handles Indiana and Michigan – that can be got onto for usually around ninety dollars a month and for a dollar a document with that information you've gotten for free for anywhere for a dollar to two dollars you can pull the assignment from that foreclosure case and start compiling a list of assignments and look for the specific robo signers that may be involved there and see whether a corrective assignment was done. My guess, you're not going to find a whole lot of corrective assignments. You're going to find that the law firm and the foreclosure mill firm involved did just went ahead with a lot of those foreclosure cases post the consent judgment because they weren't going to spend the time or the money or risk liability of admitting that they used RoboSign and forged documents to instigate a foreclosure case, let alone continue proceeding with it. They they simply went ahead and did it, knowing that in most cases, the attorney generals were going to turn a blind eye to it. And boy, were they right, because that's exactly what happened in my case. So what, again, just very quickly, what practical good does that do for the person that has a non-LPS case? Well, guess what? Uh, As Patricia Rodriguez pointed out when she was on the Neil show last week, while you do have a constant changing of a lot of these service entities, and what have you, the one thing that remains constant is the foreclosure mills because that's what they got good at and that's all that they did. What's the evidence that was compiled and put together Who put uh, for, the, for the foreclosures? Who put that together? The foreclosure mills did. And if all of a sudden it comes out that a particular foreclosure mill did not do uh, corrective assignments and went ahead and barreled ahead with foreclosure cases in violation of a consent judgment, that foreclosure mill is all of a sudden not credible anymore, is exposed to class action liability, and every other foreclosure it handles is now suspect. How would you like to be the foreclosure mill law firm that walks into that courtroom now, even if you did not use LPS in that particular instance with that particular homeowner? And yet it's well known that you're being sued because foreclosures from five years ago that you did, you barreled ahead with with forged documents. It's the weak link in the chain, and all of a sudden, as Le- as Neil again pointed out, it destroys legal presumptions, they're suspect, and with that kind of evidence out there, the AG's office, who has been sitting on its behind, is now faced with incontrovertible evidence that they didn't do their job, there is a political and a professional price to pay, and they're all of a sudden looking at that foreclosure mill as a scapegoat too, and they're going to be forced to pop them like a pimple. So it gets everyone into a position that they need to be in, whether LPS or not. Now it's 15 after, and I'm going to shut up, but any comments you want to make, because we got to get to Bill as well.
0: Oh, I really appreciate oh, I really your, appreciate your input, input on that, area.
2: On that, Eric. Yeah, no, Eric. Yeah, uh, no. excellent job. <laughs> I, I do I, say, I um, want to say, yeah. and I and I'm uh, getting yeah. a little feedback here, uh, unfortunately. But as far as the corrective assignments go, I can certainly speak to that. Being in the trenches every day and looking at these documents every day, that uh, they they there certainly are. I could probably count on my hand the number of times I've seen a corrective assignment in the thousands that I've uh, that I've been reviewing, and the behavior simply has not. Uh, stopped whatsoever. Um, I continue to see cases on a regular basis coming across my desk where these old uh, assignments and, and even the robo signing and all this forged document uh, production coming coming out of all kinds of different various sources um, still is is going on. Is it's more prevalent today than it's ever been. Really, it's it's the behavior has not stopped. Um, It is interesting, though, on your FOIA uh, coaching here and and instructing the listeners on how to follow through on that. um, I did receive a uh, response back uh, from from a client of mine who followed your instructions uh, with the California Attorney General, and uh, he he shared with me the uh, response of documents uh, as early as yesterday. And uh, to no surprise, EAG's office is uh, providing. Virtually nothing in response, and uh, objecting to everything under attorney-client privilege and all kinds of other various objections. But they, uh, there's there's nothing there. They're not um, providing any any insight as to. Uh, you know how they've been enforcing that consent judgment and whatnot. So it's it's no big surprise, but this is the first one uh, thus far that I've seen um, come across my desk, and I'm I'm guessing we're going to see a lot more of that from the other states. But uh, Charles, what, what 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 are your thoughts now that? Uh, and I think I forwarded that. Responsive letter to you earlier today Uh, You're getting the pushback and the brush off As usual Um, uh, My client had asked the question And I'll ask it of you Uh, What do you do next? Uh, Are you basically out of luck? Do you walk away? Or what do you do to put pressure on To force them to do what we believe They're entitled and and are supposed to do?
0: Well I think you use A backdoor approach And frankly the backdoor approach Could could mimic and mirror what Eric has suggested. And it starts with the database search of locating the, the foreclosure mills, you know, by their attorney names and numbers, particularly as he was saying the numbers. You can get a lot of information about cases filed and handled. And once you know the specific cases, there are various ways, including the ones Eric suggests, to, to get documents, and assignments, uh, notarizations, that, 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 that type of, of document uh, from the case file. And that's all going to be compelling stuff when it's all put together. And I also agree with Eric about the potential power of class action lawsuits. I think that's an area where there are some developments there. Clearly, the Stern case in Florida is a good success of a class action lawsuit. I think in California, there's been less litigation in that area, but that's an area that I would like to see developed in California. I think it'll benefit borrowers. And particularly when there, there is a class action lawsuit, I think it's a, it's a way to get the attention of everyone, including the attorneys general so that, the likelihood of them coming back with a pro forma pushback response such as what you just mentioned Bill i think that likelihood would be less and i would say even dramatically less because i did notice in the pushback letter that you did send me uh, they reference that is the attorney general's office they reference the attorney work product doctrine they reference something called the common interest doctrine which i won't even get into but these are all very conclusory uh, references. They don't really go into much detail at all about when, how, why, and specifically to what they are directing those objections. So I don't think it's a it's it's a fair pushback. I know they did provide no. some documents, but it sounds like those documents were not useful. Is that 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 your take, Bill?
2: The documents well, yeah. they I mean, like,
0: were useful. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the documents that they produce are basically what uh, the public has has already seen. Their their uh, announcements, a copy of the consent judgment, um, just the press releases. It's all the, the stuff that they've already put out there to the public to date. Um, but there's simply no responses as to the simple question: Did you have you followed up with LPS Black Knight in this consent judgment to to ensure uh, that they've been complying and whatnot and so uh yeah they're 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 stiff arming as is to be expected at this point but
1: uh but yeah,
2: I think um you know it's all about pressure and shining the spotlight and being persistent and to continue to um uh, force them to uh to come come out and 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 speak and to uh show their hand and uh, and i think we're we're moving in the right direction, and I'm really proud to to hear that. Many of the listeners are uh, taking it upon themselves to to follow suit and to write these letters and to put pressure on these AGs and and I think uh, the more this gets um, uh, out there and t- and the more we keep uh, pushing this message, I think it's going to be very important ultimately to uh, getting where we're, where we need to go.
0: Absolutely, and one thing that will happen uh, as individual borrowers uh, around the country push forward these letters and make it known in a bigger way that the AG offices around the country really need to address this issue. As that whole aspect develops, the class action piece, I think, becomes much more realistic. And foreclosure attorneys around the country, including California, they'll be attracted into doing class actions when they see that this is an area of right concern and another big thing that I see happening is whereas it's routine now for judges to push back in California and say, well, yeah, there was robo signing in this case apparently, but that makes the the assignment at issue merely voidable, not void. I can't imagine that they'll be able to maintain that position if there's a class action case showing hundreds and possibly even thousands of not just robo-signed, but documents with, you know, major forgeries, other types of irregularities that show there was no real individual declaration. And in as much as they've been able to fob off individual cases that bring these issues up, if the same issues or very similar issues are brought up in a class action lawsuit, I think the judicial rendering related to that is going to be more favorable and more borrower friendly, which, of course, is where where we're trying to go on this. And now, and- shifting, uh, shifting gears just a bit, on the uh, the California case, the recent Northern District case that I was discussing at the beginning of the show, I understand you have a lot of insights on that, Bill. Why don't you tell the listeners about that?
2: Well, that's actually a, a pretty good segue when you're talking about documents being, you know, arguably voidable versus void. Um, what's really interesting about this case that got past the motion to dismiss is uh, it, it's a it's a fact pattern, obviously, I'm well familiar with, and I've been looking at this and, and banging this uh, drum pretty hard for a number of years regarding uh, these assignments from J.P. Morgan Chase c- claiming to be the beneficiary of loans that were sold and securitized prior to the receivership. And one of the reasons um, that I've been banging on this is because there is a, a, a uh, extreme disconnect, I guess you could call it, um, in, in the documentation which would allow uh, in a non-judicial setting, for someone like Chase to come in and conduct a foreclosure non-judicially, um, where they have got, they have to come up with this assignment to get them to the next step, which is that substitution of trustee. And from there, then they, you know, they can declare the defaults and NODs and all that sort of thing. But the real Achilles heel here is, and what the court uh, is is pointing out in this Nordio case. Um, is that if this loan, as alleged by the plaintiff, was securitized, um, and it's in a trust, and and let me um, make it very clear that I did not do the work or any of the forensic work on this particular case, and so um, I'm just reading the uh, pleading that we posted yesterday, and, um, and so far it's alleged that the plaintiff is stating that the loan was securitized and sold prior to the receivership, and as such, Chase did not have the requisite authority as a beneficiary to uh, execute the, uh, not only assignment, but the um, substitution of trustee and the notice as a default. Well, Chase's position in the case is that um, it was not securitized, and so they're denying that portion of it. But in tens of thousands of cases, um, we have a situation where there actually, let's say, our, our assignments that... Um, are executed to, uh, let's say, a WAMU Remick Trust or whatnot uh, by Chase through through the FDIC, um, where, to get to that point, Chase needed to execute an assignment as beneficiary, usually to itself, it's one of those self-serving, self-to-self, Chase-to-Chase assignments, uh, prior to then executing the assignment to the trust. And what this court uh, is, is analyzed here in denying this motion to dismiss is that if you weren't the beneficiary and if this thing was indeed securitized prior to the receivership, uh, the argument is that these documents are void and they had no authority to substitute a trustee are valid. Those are valid claims that, that survive. Well, that's what's going on even in, in tens of thousands of cases where, where a trust is even identified. And I've said this for a long, long time, that Chase simply cannot cut corners and get to that substitution of trustee by executing a document as beneficiary if they have never been the beneficiary. And therefore, this court recognizes that there's that's a valid claim, that these documents are not voidable. They're void if they were done so without the requisite authority. And this is... Um, uh, you know, extreme. I think this is very common and just, in, in the vast majority of all WAMU loans that were sold to the the GSEs, uh, Fannie, Freddie. Um, I did that article that was referenced there, that you know, showing 615 billion, for example, did not go through the hands of the FDIC, and so therefore, uh, you've got an awful lot of paperwork that's piled up here by JPMorgan Chase. Uh, Where they've claimed to be the beneficiary when they're not, and so this is this a very very interesting case. Um, What do you have? What are your thoughts on that, Charles? I'm sorry.
0: Well, my thoughts are similar to Neil's. Uh, I think this case is emblematic of of what we've seen time and time again, where whether you look at the so-called securitization that happens literally within days sometimes the same day typically within weeks or months of the origination of these types of loans you know in the middle of the last decade that the so-called securitization whether it's botched whether it never happened whether it happened in a in a, in a way that made the the provisioning of the so-called loan uh Exceed the time frame when it could have gone in and preserved taxpayer treatment, meaning the securitized trust, the alleged securitized trust, would remain tax-free. When you look at it from all these different angles, it it comes down to an assessment that there really isn't an identifiable loan that you can segregate and separate at the origination, and so when you talk about first principles and first levels of defense, even if you're framing your defense in a plaintiff's case, anticipating foreclosure or dealing with it currently, it's almost an essential first principle at this point, particularly given how difficult it is, you know, where you don't have the situation where Chase took over a bunch of loans ostensibly with authority, which authority is rarely established, you know, of the of the whole Washington mutual pool. But just to back up what I was saying, um, you have so many situations where the loan origination makes it completely unclear whether there was really an original originating loan with a borrower and a lender and an obligation to pay that's specific. In essence you don't know who the lender is, not just because the securitization was botched or there was some other problem with the securitization, but because of the very nature of the process itself. And I think it's difficult to frame the pleadings that way because you essentially have to essentially question the existence of a loan from the beginning and that it's going to strain the credibility of judges and courts. On the other hand, The other side will still have some burden and some proof obligation to show that, yes, they're the proper party foreclosing. Yes, they have an assignment beneficiary role in this loan. And to the extent that you can question the existence of the loan at all, I think that's a line of attack. It's one of the few lines of attack that haven't really been explored fully. And I think Neil is the best promulgator Of the position on this, and I I have come to agree with him that this this notion of the origination of so many of these loans not even being a real loan origination it's fundamental to to analyzing these cases and to putting together the pleadings. I think in the long run, there are going to be some problems with this case. Um, You know, we've seen time and again that at either the federal level or the state level, you can get past motion to dismiss, but then a lot of the same arguments will be raised in a motion for summary judgment down the road. And if the legal posture or the document posture is different at that point, then that can create problems as well. Uh, so what, what what's your take on how to litigate these cases in a way that changes the type of rejection that we're getting. In other words, challenging the very existence of a loan at a fundamental level is one way. Do you have thoughts on that or how else borrowers, well, litigators might go go forward with these cases to get past the typical arguments that we've been hearing on the other side?
2: Well, I, I think, first of all, the path of least resistance um, is always the best path. And I think JP Morgan chases uh, in. House Counsel, uh, Kiesel Young, did us all a very big favor uh, this summer when it stipulated with this AO1 code belonging to WAMO Asset Acceptance Corp. Um, because in that stipulation, and, and you know, I don't want to be redundant because I know we've talked about it, but it's very pertinent. I um, to say we talked about this on the show before, but in that stipulation
0: yeah, it's useful, it's useful for the, the listeners to hear it again we, yeah we well, it, the, it, but I think some of them are worth addressing again for sure
2: yeah absolutely well in that stipulation what is so critical is that this was a case where an assignment was made to a 2007 WAMU series trust and in that stipulation uh, in order for them to maintain their story of a chain of title that the trust actually got the loan, they stipulated that it did not go through the FDIC, and they stipulated that the AO1 code did belong to uh, Asset Acceptance Corp, and therefore um, it was sold into that trust uh, through the depositor and into the issuing entity in seven and and so they're stating in that stipulation this loan didn't go through the FDIC well that kind of blows their cover on tens of thousands of these cases where they have said that the loan first went through the FDIC they claimed to be the beneficiary and then assigned it to the trust okay well you can't the, the fact pattern doesn't work both ways uh, they want to say on one hand that they got all of these loans through the f d i c and we know that that 's a a, a a pretty bogus story and there 's no evidence to support that but now they 've they 've basically cracked the armor uh or you know or you know The Titanic, you know, drilling a hole into the hull here, they've admitted that, well, this loan was securitized and therefore it didn't go to the FDIC. Well, now that's the same issue you're going to face with tens of thousands of cases where that same fact pattern and stipulation is the truth in in all these tens of thousands of other cases where you decided to uh, trump up the paperwork to get to the substitution of trustee. So this is really going to be damaging for them, and I understand they're doing, trying to do a lot of damage control right now um, <laughs> over that stipulation. It's my understanding that uh, that law firm that was handling quite a few cases has now been uh, maybe, I'm not sure, but it sounds to me as though they've been dismissed uh, or replaced, um, and they're very nervous about um, that, that stipulation and the damage that this thing is going to cause. So in the thread of the class action things that we we're talking about, here, uh, what are your thoughts, Charles, on, on this fact pattern, which is very specific and very simple in tens of thousands of cases where uh, where they're executing the substitution of trustee on the heels of a beneficial claim on the assignment to get to the SOT, and that's basically the same exact identical fact pattern in tens of thousands of cases.
0: I think it is a clear break, and... You know, I'm concerned about whether it'll hold up on summary judgment. On the other hand, you know, if if this case settles before summary judgment or in a similar type of case, we see a similar result, then this does become a leading edge that I think can be exploited. And I do believe that class action lawsuits are a potentially really good vehicle for not just the FOIA-related matters, uh, but in situations like this where you've made some progress because of the way that a particular substitution of trustee can be challenged. So I'm hopeful for class action lawsuits in California and elsewhere. I think just parenthetically, not even talking about jointer cases, but to dismiss them as a vehicle, I think – Joinder cases have been so beat down by various regulatory authorities, everybody from the state bar to federal authorities, that I think it's going to be very hard to bring the vast majority of attorneys into joinder actions, at least in California. And I I haven't seen a lot of traction in other states either. But class action cases, I think, are definitely an area that uh, both litigators and borrowers need to well ideally move into but at least gather more information and documentation related to doing class action lawsuits and that impetus you know can create two or three that can then move forward potentially and it could it could change the whole climate one other aspect uh that i think could become an issue, you know, in this particular case, and that I could see being useful elsewhere. Is, I mean, how often, Bill, do you coordinate or find yourself um, sharing an expert role with CPAs or somebody whose sole job is to is to is to just look at the numbers? So for instance document that a particular loan really does show up on the general ledger of a specific party to a case i mean how often do you see that level of specialization related to 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 actual accounting is that something you see much or or not very much
2: Unfortunately, I, I have not seen that very much. Um, I know and I believe Neil has, has posted and talked about this repeatedly um, that he's put the feelers out there for CPAs and those to come forth uh, if they're interested in getting into this line of work. Um, I think it's a tremendous idea. I have uh, very recently been cultivating some connections in that area that hopefully come to fruition. Um, I am uh, told that one uh, specialized uh, CPA, accounting, fraud, money expert, so to speak, um, it, who's in the uh, public sector in law enforcement right now is uh, considering uh, early retirement to come into the the private side as a PI, such as myself, to maybe assist in this. So I, I have been um, uh, putting the feelers out there, and hopefully that that's going to come to fruition because it's an absolute necessity, um, I think, to cracking this thing, uh, open on many many levels, and I think it's long overdue um you know i i, I hear uh, things you know, even yesterday um and I'll remain anonymous and things and some of my contacts off the record, but you know I'm told you know that a a California judge very recently had had mentioned that even to this day in all the foreclosure cases that he has seen come before him, his comment was we judges just don't and i know this sounds like hearsay but he's his comment was we still don't get this stuff and the complexity of it uh we don't understand we just it's very 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 confusing and that that's why it's it's very important to you have to almost dumb some of this down uh for the judges even to this day but um but that's some feedback that i that i heard from a credible source really saying this and the judges still they just don't get this but i think the numbers and the accounting is going to be a very critical part to this um, because I'm sure uh, you would agree, and Neil has said this before, I think we're only in about the fifth inning of this game. I think we've got a long road ahead, and um, and once we start to break through some of these barriers, it has the ability to possibly go back and rehash and reopen and exhume a lot of cases from the past. So, um, there, we're, we're there's no end in sight to this, unfortunately. Um, and so we have to come in with some better weapons and some better uh, forms of attack, and I think CPAs uh, have to join our team.
0: Absolutely, and it, it dovetails right back in with the the need for class action lawsuits. Because any class action lawsuit, there's going to be a major budget to fund what needs to be litigated. And it's in that type of case that you're more likely to see the funding available for someone like uh, a CPA or other accounting expert. And I think it's absolutely the case that if you have a CPA or another accounting expert, analyze all the general ledgers or what's, pretending to be a general ledger for the various players and foreclosing parties. You know, in other words, all the named defendants in a non-judicial state or the, the plaintiff's parties in the judicial foreclosure state, you expose who all the parties are connected supposedly to the chain of title. And then if the specific loan at issue doesn't show up on their general ledger, that's compelling evidence that none of them really not, – not, not just that they're not connected to the loan. It, 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 it goes back to, to Neil's originating point that it's not clear that there's really a loan in the classic sense at all to begin with. And I, I like that as an area where foreclosure cases, you know, either on the plaintiff's side or defendant defendant's side – uh, can can cause judges to, to to pause because I think you're absolutely right that even now, and I, I see see it on a regular basis uh, at at demure hearings in the state cases and in the federal cases. The few times that they'll actually hold a hearing, they usually they usually dispose of the. Uh, the matter, whether it's a motion to dismiss or even a summary judgment motion, I, I, I see all the time uh, at the federal level that these cases will be disposed of on the pleadings. They won't even entertain oral argument even when it's scheduled. However, this this kind of raises the issue of it's it's not contrary to what you're saying. It's kind of a different spin on it. If we make this stuff even more complex, but still breaking it down and like you said, dumbing it down, but if we kind of go into the heart of the difficult issues here even more, it may push judges to at least let these cases go to trial, because if they if, if they'll finesse in a lot of cases uh, to make up for the fact that they don't understand, but if we can expose their lack of understanding even more then I think we have a better shot. So we come up to the end of our program today, and Neil again will be on next Thursday.
2: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy.